0: As Danny read for us, we're continuing uh, in the book of Mark, working our way through the book of Mark. This morning, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9, looking at verses 38 through 42. So if you have your handout or a Bible, if you want to open up your Bible to Mark 38 through 42, I'll read for us again if you want to follow along. Mark, starting at verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward able to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Father, we thank you for your word We thank you for uh, the truth in which you have kept for us, which declares you, which we unite around in your kindness and your faithfulness because of the work of your son, by the power of your spirit. I pray that you would help us this morning, uh, that we would have unity and clarity in your word, Pray that you would help us, Lord, as we think of our own pride. Eyes that quickly look at ourself and forget about you. That you would help us to love others enough to be clear, compassionate, and completely dependent upon you. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark. 9, starting at verse 38, is really starting kind of in the middle of the passage as we read it, and as Daniel reminded us, it's important for us to look at the context of where we are. Uh, one of the reasons we preach through Scripture, verse by verse, working our way through books, is because God did not intend the Bible uh, to be a game of religion roulette, where we grab and go, what does this verse mean to me? Uh, but then it would be understood in context. So as we work our way through the book of Mark, we always start with looking at first the context of where we are. So look with me at your handout or in your Bible at the context. Uh, Danny helped us to see this also, that Jesus, as he has been transfigured, he has healed uh, a young boy who was uh, oppressed by a demon. And then uh, the disciples who could not marveled at what he had done. And He gave them instruction. He told them again that He would die and that He would rise again. And then, as they're leaving, He gives them instructions about their own pride. Because as they're leaving, seeing what Christ has done, seeing what He's accomplished, the disciples then break into discussion and argument at some point over the next few days as they're traveling over which one of them are the greatest after seeing all the greatness of Christ, the first thing that comes to their mind to debate is which one of us are the greatest. And Jesus corrects them. If you look with me in context, verses 33 through 37. It says, "...and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest." And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him up in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. If you remember last week, we looked at the humbling expectation of Christ of what it means to be one who would lead or one who would be first in Christ is not for your own glory, but is for the service of others. What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of Christ? It means to reflect Christ, yes, in his holiness, but also in his service. That he came to serve, he did not come to condemn the world, but to die that many would be saved. And so as men are looking for glory on earth, looking for glory in anything, the church is not immune to that. And the sin of pride, the disciples were not immune to that. And Jesus gives them quick, humbling expectation. What should you then be pursuing if you would be a leader or first in the kingdom? If you want to be at the top, what should your expectation be? It should be that you serve everyone. That you are the servant of all. And He gave them a humbling example of this. Taking a child near Him, and He's saying, this little child. And if you remember from Matthew, it says what is significant about the child is the child is humble. The child is dependent. The child is completely needy. The child is aware of their dependence on everyone else. And even where they're not aware, it makes them even more needy and dependent. And so he says, if you are to be his, you must be like a child. And then he gives this instruction in verse, uh, not 42, 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name, Jesus not speaking of an actual child, but saying, this is the ones who receive the kingdom, those who are humble and dependent upon me. He says, whoever receives one, whoever cares for one of these children, one of Jesus's, receives not just Christ, but the Father who sent him. He is giving the expectation of not just that you would serve others before you, but that you would care for them like they were your children. Even more so, more importantly, like they were God's children. Because they are. Whoever receives one of these in my name. And so that's where we left off contextually last week, this humbling expectation of what it means to lead And the humility of saying what it means is you need to become completely dependent on Christ in the same way that a child is dependent upon their parents. And then the call for anyone who would seek to be first or seek to lead, that their job then is not to glorify themselves, but much like a parent, to set yourself aside and to care for them. Right? There's very little glory in parenting, uh, particularly when you are a parent. And the only time that you find glory in parenting uh, is either later in life, it says there's rewards in that, or in your own pride, right? When those little people are worshiping you. When you walk in the door, I remember I would come home from work when Avery, Jude, and Capri were all under four years old, and you would have thought like a rock star or the president or whoever is the most incredible person in the world got home. And I loved it. I love to walk in the door, and it was like, "Dad's here!" Wah! When they're running to the door, one because I love them, right? God takes joy in our love for Him, our praise for Him. He takes joy in the praise of His saints, just as we do in our children. But also in pride, because I also like to be exalted. I like to be praised. I like when people love me, and. While that can be good, it is a tricky part of our heart because it often deceives us like it did the disciples in seeing the greatness of Christ and the praise of Christ. Their first thought is, well, am I greater than Peter? Am I greater than John? I mean, who even knows who Bartholomew is? Clearly it's not him, <laughs> right? They immediately go to debate and after that debate, now that Jesus has said this, he has clarified for them the expectation. Uh, we see John, and this is the only place in the gospel, uh, well, the first place, we'll see it once more. James and John have a great idea about how to handle other people uh, again. But we see John here asking Jesus a question. And, and it's not clear why he's asking the question. The, the reasoning or the motive behind John is not displayed. We, we can only speculate But the question that he asks Jesus, he he confesses in a way something that was happened. John said to him, or in Luke it says, John answered him. So as Jesus is saying this, now this this is what John's first thought is. This I need to say to Jesus. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So if you look at the text, verse 38, first we see John's question. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. He doesn't state it as a question, but he makes a statement to Jesus. It could be that John heard Jesus say that whoever receives such a child in my name, and John, like a human, you hear someone say something like, in my name, you don't hear the rest of the sentence, you just hear, in my name, and your mind immediately goes to, ah, oh, I remember that guy that was casting out demons in the name of Christ. And then I'm going to tell Christ this story, right? I know some of you, some of you I'm, I'm related to, and I've been related to you a long time because you gave birth to me, and you occasionally, uh, I mean these people, occasionally just, they're, they're with you, they love you, they're kind of just running through information, Right? And so they hear something, and then they're just moving to the next story. My mom's smiling at me now. Because, oh, in my name. Oh, I remember in my name. Oh, Jesus, we were actually out. We're like living life, and we saw this other guy doing something in your name, and, and we told him to stop. Could be John's just kind of hearing the conversation, continuing it. Could be. It could be that John is confessing this, Right? John has just heard what Jesus has said about that you ought to serve others and follow others and to receive the little one in their name. And then John's got an idea in his mind of maybe I shouldn't have done this. And so he's confessing it to Jesus. He's saying, hey, uh, we saw this guy doing this, and, and he was doing it in your name, and we told him to stop. It could be, and I think it's likely, John, you know, at the state of the disciples, they're often confused. John's just trying to get clarity. So we did this, and leaving it open to, should we have? Right? As Jesus has just declared the humility and the service toward others, and, Jesus, and John is thinking now, okay, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name, and we're thinking, we told him to stop because he wasn't following us. Is that what we should have done? Any of those could be the reasoning in which John asks the question, it doesn't tell us the motive of John's heart because the gospel is not about John. It's about Jesus. And the recording of it is not so we can psychoanalyze, as I just did, John and the many reasons in which he might have asked the question. But the question is put there by Mark, under the authority of Peter, by the kindness of the Holy Spirit, to point us to Jesus' answer. The primary point is not why did John ask the question the primary point that where our ears need to perk up and listen is what did Jesus answer? Because Jesus' answer clarifies whatever reason John was asking. So let's look together then, starting at verse 39. How does Jesus answer John's question? But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck And he were thrown in to the sea. Jesus says, do not stop him. And then he gives reasons. He says, do not stop him. And then you see following that, he gives reasons. He says, for. Okay, that is a statement of reason. He's saying, what you should do is don't stop him. And now let me tell you why you shouldn't stop him. Do not stop him. Number one, for the power of Christ's work. Do not stop Him, for no one who does a mighty work in My name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of Me. He says, no one who does a mighty work in My name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of Me. Now notice, Jesus is stating that this was done in His name. That does not mean that this was done and the man said the name of Jesus. It's more complicated than that to say it was done in my name. It's done in his authority. It is done with him as the backer. It is done in the sense of a king puts a signet on something, the seal of his, and it says it is done in his name. This does not mean just because someone invokes the name of Jesus, that what they are doing is right. It's not that anyone could walk up and say, in the name of Jesus, and they're doing it in his name. We know this is true, and and I'll point you to, we won't turn there. Uh, But if you were to look at Acts 19, we see some Jewish exorcists doing this very thing, as they were men who would cast out demons as a vocation. Uh, they hear that Jesus has cast out demons and now Paul, who is an apostle of Christ, is casting out demons. And so they go in and they start saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And he's casting them out in Jesus' name, just with the words. And what happens to those guys is super funny. They get beat down and stripped and sent out. The demon goes, I know who Paul is. I don't know who Jesus, or I know who Jesus is. I don't know who you are. And the demon-possessed man beats the tar out of them, takes their clothes, and sends them out. And so if you're to say, oh, well, all you have to do is say, in Jesus' name, and that makes everything in his name, we have clear evidence in Scripture that is not the case. So when Jesus says, this man is doing this in my name, he doesn't mean this man is merely invoking the name of Jesus. He means that he is doing it in the ministry the truth of Christ.
1: And so he says, no,
0: do not stop him. We know Jesus also had others who were sent out to cast out demons, uh, the 70. So he sends out the 12. The 12 come back, and he sends out the 70. He sends out more to go and preach and to proclaim Christ. And so it would not be, it could be that it was one of those believers uh, that John's referring to. Uh, doubtful. This is probably before that, and John probably wouldn't have stopped him if he heard Jesus saying, the 70 are to go do this. But it could be that, that that's John's confusion. But Christ is not confused about what's going on here. This man is doing works in the name of Christ. And he says that no one who does so will be able soon to speak evil of me. No one who is doing works in his name, if they are in his name, will later be speaking evil of him. They will not be able to. I would say in one of two ways. And in one, if they are truly doing it in his name, then they're not going to. If they weren't doing it in his name, they won't be able to soon. Because if you remember from the beginning of John, the kingdom of God is at hand and men are called to repent and believe the gospel. While it might seem like a long time to us, uh, Jesus makes this statement that He will not be able long afterward to speak evil of Me. It could be that Jesus is just making the, the plain statement of if He's doing this in My name, He's not going to start profaning My name. But even if He were to be a man who is doing it with wrong motives, God is the judge. It's say biblical principle of that vengeance is... Mine, says the Lord. It's not John's job to find vengeance. It's John's job to proclaim the truth. And so he can trust in the power of Christ. That both Christ knows how to give His power and both that Christ is the one who will avenge Himself. If things are done in His name in a way that is not His name, He will make that right. We see it in Mark 7. There are many who come to Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy? And Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus will make clear what was done in his power and what was not in just a short time. Verse 40, the next four. So we see four, a mighty work done in his name will be judged rightly. By him. Verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. (coughs) There are many against Jesus at this point. I mean, there's many against Jesus right now as I'm speaking, yes. But I'm in the in the text of what we're doing, the scribes, the Pharisees, there are many against Jesus. There are those who want Jesus dead, those who are plotting against him. And so Jesus makes the simple statement for uh, if he is not against us, the one who is not against us is for us. This is not generically saying this is a man who is neutral. He's saying he's, he's not against us. He's proclaiming the name of me, Christ. He's for us. Don't spend your time trying to stop him. So, one, for the power of Christ's work will show itself, and he is the judge over it. two, Christ is legitimizing the man's work, and he's saying he is not for us, He is not opposed to us. He's not a critic. He is at work in the name of Christ. He is not against us. He's for us. See? The sure reward. <coughs> Sorry. The sure reward for the smallest of sacrifice in Christ. Look with me at verse 41. He tells him that he must not stop him. Do not stop him because the power of Christ will be displayed because he is not in opposition to them. He is not against them. He is for them. And 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Saying that the the, the least of work. Whoever would give a glass of water. Right? Do you think of giving a glass of water as a great work? Like you've done some serious kindness? If you were to hand a glass of water to someone? If so, God help you. If your idea of an overwhelming act of kindness towards someone is that you gave them a glass of water, you need to start serving people. Because this is the most little of things. To to merely give someone a glass of water. But he says, if he would give a glass of water in my name, he who gives a glass of water to one of these, to the little children, to God's people in my name, will by no means lose his reward. He's saying that God does not miss even the smallest of acts for his glory. He is faithful and fair to look and to say what is done in Christ's name deserves reward and deserves to be praised and deserves to be recognized. I understand all of the theological difficulties with us embracing that because we understand sin. We understand that even our righteous deeds are filthy rags outside of Christ. But in Christ, He does not belittle your service to Him. Like even as I say that out loud, I think he probably wouldn't have made the joke that I made about if you think giving a cup of water is actually serving people. Because he recognizes the heart. The kindness and the compassion to do even the most simple of things in the name of Christ. And so as John is wrestling through and the disciples are wrestling through who's greater and who's powerful and should we even accept this man? Should we stop him because he's not one of us? Jesus is making clear the power of Christ is more than you. The faithfulness of Christ is beyond you. If he's working for Christ just because he's against you or you see him as against you, he is with us. And the rewards of Christ are great. Even the smallest of work. Even the smallest act of faithfulness. He is true and faithful. And then there is a warning. A serious warning for stumbling another saint. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown in to the sea. Whoever causes one of these little ones, remember back to verse 39, whoever receives this child in my name. So whoever causes one of these, the the humbled who have come to Christ, His people, His children, those who live dependent upon Him, day by day, needing Him, recognize who they are, not just an outward expression, this is reality in them. He says, whoever causes one of these to sin, where the literal is to stumble or to fall into sin, to be torn up. He says, it would be better for him if a great millstone. So think about your millstone at home, right? Are you picturing it? You guys don't have millstones? No. No. In Israel at the time, this would not be a foreign idea. As Jesus tells the disciples, it would be like a great millstone hung around his neck. This is, this is a giant, massive object they're going to see all the time. It is for the, the uh, breaking down of grain and separating it from the seed uh, within it and all this. I'm even trying to explain it. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that happens. So, but it's crushing the grain And this millstone is a giant wheel, essentially, that spins on another giant wheel. And as those wheels turn and the grain is brought under, it's crushing them. So what's Jesus' point here? This thing is huge. He's not saying it would be better for them, you know, if they were kind of left at sea to fend for themselves. He's not saying tie a weight to them. It'd be better for them if a weight was tied to them and they were thrown in the ocean. No, he's saying it would be better if they had a sure and miserable death than to willingly cause another believer to fall into sin. He is painting a drastic picture. In our own word, it's not. It would be better if he had ankle weights put on him and he was thrown into the sea. It would be better if they took an Escalade and tied it to a rope and put that rope around his neck and threw him and the Escalade into the ocean. He's making a drastic statement. He is making a statement that is clear in comparison. It's saying if if you think that causing another believer to fall into sin is a little matter, let me paint a picture for you in the gravity. It would be better. For you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the ocean than to cause another believer to sin. This is, this is a serious statement. So he is calling John for whatever John is asking for to think clearly and quickly and seriously about his treatment of other believers. He's calling John and the other disciples to not so quickly decide that it is about them and what they are doing, but it is about Christ. It should be those who are slow to do anything that would be to hinder or to condemn another believer who would stumble them into sin. While we might take it as just a matter of asking a question and getting an answer Jesus is pointing quickly to the reality of what as Danny said clickishness or sectarianism or the deciding to worship us rather than Christ and the effects of that to say it is us and us alone who do this rightly it is a grave danger to believers it's a grave danger to us that we would be those who would look out and say, nobody does right like we do. In your own life, as a church, I think often even as a family. And I think as a family is a helpful way to understand this. What I want to do is spend the remainder of our time looking how to apply this passage. Because I I think a danger here for us is we see this and we decide what this means is we should never speak against anyone. We should let everyone do as they will. We should never communicate any kind of air, never communicate any kind of confusion. The way to have unity is ambiguity or vagueness. The way that we can be unified is to say, hey, who am I to know and never to communicate any truth. There's a grave danger for us because I think we often interpret this in the lens of our common era and not in the lens of Scripture. Does Jesus mean that everyone should be able to do as they will and they should just be able to live as they will and no one should question anyone else, no one should communicate to anyone else, no one should seek to convince anyone else? No one should ever challenge anyone else. Is that what he means? It's never what he said. He made clear not to hinder the work of other believers. Yes. He made clear to the disciples, though they are disciples, they are not in some position that means no one else serves Christ. Lest John think that what he is doing is the only thing worthy of a reward because I'm an apostle and I have followed him. Jesus tells him, no, if someone even gives you a drink of water because you are Christ's, because you belong to him. God sees that. It is not your great service that makes you worthy to be praised. It is Christ." So your littlest of deed to your greatest is deed is only magnified before God because of Christ. Throughout the entire passage, it's about Christ, not the man. It's about the power and the work of Christ. It is about being for Christ. It is about whoever cares for those who are Christ's and whoever hinders those who are Christ's. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name. He says, whoever would give a drink of water to one because you belong to Christ. It is not about mere unity in plurality of people. It is about unity around Christ. And I think we often are are confused in this. We even look as people to say, well, we just, we just need to say everyone is okay. We need to challenge no one. We should not be those who bring up matters of doctrine. Doctrine is divisive. Christian, let me encourage you, doctrine is the unity in which you have. Doctrine is the articulation of unity. Christian unity is found in deep doctrinal clarity not shallow ambiguity. The unity around Christ is found in deep doctrinal clarity, not a shallow ambiguity. How can we unite with others, even if they're not part of our church, if they're other Christians? How can we unite with them because of the deep doctrinal clarity that we have in what Christ has done? We don't unite just in that who are we to judge? We unite in saying Christ has paid the penalty. We are united in Him. Look with me at Ephesians chapter two, verses thirteen through twenty-two. We have a deep doctrinal unity, not just as Faith Bible Menifee, but as Christians. There is a deeply rooted truth in which we unite around. We are not like our society which unites around everybody has something good to bring to the table. Unite and hear everyone's opinion and make sure everyone is involved and everyone knows and everyone has a say because who are you to say they're wrong? No, we do not unite as such. We unite because Christ has united us. And because he is the authority because he has spoken because he has brought all from near close and far far away and removed where united around Christ look with me to Ephesians it's in the, the bottom of your handout Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 through 22 he says but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How has He done so? Verse 15, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Number one, in verses 13-16, through we see Christ paid the price of our unity. Our unity is not in a mere humility of recognizing the value of other people. I have a neighbor, a friend, who doesn't love Christ, whose hope is not in Christ, uh, and he posted something on social media the other day that I thought was really helpful and true and people should embrace. He says, I never scream and yell at my servers at a restaurant because they are not my slave. They are a fellow human being trying to earn a living. That's... It's a great attitude. I assume most of you have that attitude. If not, learn from the mouth of a pagan who doesn't love Jesus. Why would you treat another human that way? But Christian, you have even greater clarity because you might justify in your mind, but I'm a better human. I worked harder. I'm more educated. I'm refined. I'm cultured. They're a schlep. That's why they serve me. But Christian, that is not true. They are, as my friend recognized, created in equality. A human being, and you know even more so, created in the image of God and glory to reflect God. But what would bring you unity with them? What would make you united, not able to be divided from them, that you both just humbly recognize that you're on an equal playing field? It might unite you with them. You might be united to them. And much of our world wants to unite in that way. But that's not the unity we're talking about here. No, the unity we're talking about here is more than two people humbling themselves to say we're both humans. It's two people who are humbled to stand before God to say we deserve hell. We are both humans. And humans by nature are dead in sin. Sons of disobedience. Created and rebelled and by nature are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2, just a few verses up. But you who were once far off have been brought near because you humbled yourself to recognize you're like other people. Is that what purchased you? Because you were educated. You you once weren't, but then you became educated. Because you were homeschooled and then you got really educated. Or because you were pagan schooled and then you got really educated at home. Is it your education? No. You are not unified and brought together to other people by something done within yourself. It is not you that have accomplished this. If you are unified, it is because you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, For He Himself is our peace. He is what has ended the war and the hostility. And the major issue of the war is not a war between you and other people. It is the war between you and God. The war you declared in sin. The war that you said you will not listen and obey. You will not do as he has said. And God has gone to great lengths to make this clear to you. He did it in his people Israel, who were those who are close and near and they had the laws and the ordinances of God and were brought before them to show them that they would never measure up. That they, even with the perfect law of God, could not live to the glory of God. They were needy. They must be like children, completely dependent upon Him by faith. Because with all the laws and ordinances, they were not freed from their sin, but their sin was clarified. It's like you were brought into a court case on one charge. And then as the laws were read, you recognized, oh no, I'm not just a speeder. I'm an embezzler and a cheater and a thief and an adulterer. And I'm guilty of so much more. And he has made it clear through those who were near, through his function and calling and creating and leading and loving and faithfully enduring the rebellious people of Israel. While we, most of us, if not all of us, and our ancestors lived in pagan, foolish sin. And he says, but you who were once far off have been brought near. How? Not by becoming a Jew not by being brought in and and now the Jews and the Gentiles are all one together. No, that in Christ, what He did is He broke down the law, the commands. He paid the penalty for them. The law no longer stands over man because in Christ, He has brought peace. How? By His blood. He has paid the penalty of sin for those who were near and could not pay it. And those who were far and could not pay it. And now both are brought together as the saints and the household of God as His because He paid it. It is a deep truth that He created in Himself people who live by faith, making peace and reconciling us both to God in one body, His body, crucified on the cross, thereby killing the hostility, killing the war between God and man, killing the war that his people continued to declare in sin that they would not obey, and removing the hostility. And so therefore, we are united. How? Verse 17, And he came And preach peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. The Spirit applies our reconciliation to the Father because of the work of Christ. The Spirit applies the reconciling work of Christ to us and reconciles us to the Father. You see that in verse 17. You see the Spirit's continued work in making us a dwelling place for God or those who are joined together and grow together by God through the Spirit. The Spirit applies the reconciliation. The Spirit brings in you regeneration or what is commonly called in our society to be born again. To have a heart that is transformed. To be born by water human birth, and the spirit, supernatural rebirth, regeneration, from a heart that is in enmity with God in malicious dissent and hostility toward others to a heart that is now renewed and rejoices and is not only reconciled to God, but is able to see man through God's eyes, in a sense, to be ministers of reconciliation, Not one who says, you should be like me because I am holy before God. One who says, God is holy and gives grace. Run to Him. Repent. The Spirit applies that to our hearts. That we now are sealed and His in glory and work and live for Him because of the work of Christ sealed by the work of the Spirit. We are brought into the household of God. And that household is built on a foundation. Look with me at verse 20. Let's start at 19. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In Him also you are being built together into a dwelling place by God. You who are strangers and aliens have been brought near, reconciled by the blood of Christ. If your hope is in Christ, you are now part of this and it is built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. This is not a generic truth. This is not a hidden truth that man just discovered. This is not common grace that man has the ability to find and to see things on his own and he can come to the right conclusions. And if we just had a collective unity of all man who came together and did all their studies and had all their knowledge and all their background and all their history and all their ethnicities and all the things that we would be one great human race as God created us and we'd be able to figure out all the answers and we would build ourselves a new foundation. Do you know man already tried that? Genesis 11, they all came together and in their own power, their own strength, they're going to build a great tower to show that they don't need and they're greater than God. Do you know what God does to their great tower? It says he came down to see it because their great tower was so tiny, so small, so nothing before him. And in grace and mercy, he scattered them and their languages that they would not unite around themselves, but that his plan and his purpose to save all people in Christ, all nations would come to him. He made the nations. He scattered them that they might learn they need to depend on him. And then created Israel out of one man, Abraham, to make a whole nation that would display for the whole world, even if you had everything and you were God's special people, the sin in your heart could not save you. It is the foundation on which we stand. It is not just an old story for Jews. It is the truth in which God has proclaimed and set and made known so that all might look to see the foundation of the promises of God that He is faithful, that He is good, that He is kind, that we are sinful and needy of Him. It is not a generic work. It is a foundational work wrought in God and given by the apostles and prophets. And Christ Himself, the cornerstone. Lastly, the church is the ongoing work of Christ. It says, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the Old and New Testament, the, the work and the recording of that for us. And Christ then being the cornerstone, the peace that sets the building in motion. Christ being the cornerstone in which everything is united around. The stone which decides for everything where it goes, and how it's built. If the cornerstone is wrong, the entire building is done. And it says, though the foundation of the apostles and prophets, it is Christ Himself who is the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is built and joined together, and all grows together into a temple of the Lord. And in Him, you are being built together to grow. As usual, I'm more excited about... uh, what I preach, and, and we're running out of time. So we're just going to stay an extra hour today, okay? All right. So let me, let me sum up uh, what is a massive handout for you and explain why it's so massive. This is the deep truth in which all believers must unite. As a church, we have a vast doctrinal statement. It's about 46 pages uh, in outline form of our doctrinal positions on all kinds of things. Because we believe that unity is found in doctrinal clarity, not ambiguity. We are not more unified to say, who are we to know where we stand? Why would we even debate or discuss or argue? We are more unified to say, the word of God is the authority. And let me be clear with you where we stand on that so that we can have open and honest discussion. So that you don't come to church and you're shocked by what I'm teaching. So that as you hold positions that might differ from those of the elders, you're not confused about that. You don't don't have to spend years with us and then go, wait, I never knew you guys were cessationists. I never knew you guys were premillennialists. I never knew that you guys held to the uh, truths of salvation. I never knew who you were. No, we have openly, and on our website, you can look through massive amounts of doctrine because we think doctrinal unity brings actual unity. Not in that everyone agrees, but it's clear. This is the authority. We believe God has the authority in His Word. And so if we are going to debate, we're going to discuss, we do so by the authority of the Word. It's essential also in unity of function. We're a church that takes doctrine and deep doctrine seriously because it is the necessary function of the church. Two areas, let me give you two areas where I think this is addressed mostly, in the gifts of the church and the government of the church. If a church does not have unity in the gifts and the government, that church will not function. If a church does not have unity in the need and the function of spiritual gifts, then that church is immediately hindering itself. It is cutting its own Achilles heel because the church is to function in the gifts. The church is commanded to function. It is told, as we've looked at recently in community groups, you have been given a gift to use in the church. How does God do what Christ does here in verse 21 and 22, in whom the whole structure being built and joined together grows into a holy temple and in Him you're being built together into a dwelling place in God? He does that through local churches that function together. Does that mean that one local church is greater than another? No? Does it mean that one local church might be right about some things that another is not? definitely I'm sure there are churches I'm positive I know them I could drive you there who better understand the truth of God's word than we do that's okay that doesn't mean we should stop being a church it means we should look to those who do it better and say I want to learn from them I want to understand them much like your own family you have things you do as a family that are just necessity right You have dinner at a certain time, or you don't have dinner at a certain time. You just randomly all have dinner, okay? So if the husband says, I wanna have dinner at five o'clock every day, at the table, all sitting together, okay? The wife says, I want everyone to get their own dinner, eat it wherever they want, at whatever time of day. How's that family gonna function in disunity? They're not gonna function well. And that's just a, a light, an important but a light example if, if they don't have agreement on the government, agreement on the function, an agreement on how we do this. So why do churches divide? If Jesus says, don't stop him, why do we have different denominations? This is such a common question. Why do we have Baptists and Presbyterians and all these things and non-denominational Bible churches? Why do we have all of these things? For the clarity of doctrine for the function of the church and in such clarity in such function that we can say in those things that are essential we are united but in those things that demand our function where we have division we can have clarity on why I love many Presbyterians and I, I'm more than happy to sit with hours to communicate with them in the Word of God to tell them why they are wrong about baptizing their children with conviction. And I hope that they would have the same conviction and go to the Word of God with me and say, this is why I think you're wrong. Do you know why we can have unity despite our disagreement? Because we have unity in the authority. It is the Word of God. Where we disagree, we leave to God. But we must act within our conscience, within clarity and unity of doctrine because we are called to function as a family. Now, often people will say things like doctrinal unity or doctrine is divisive. Why don't we just let doctrine go? I-, I gave you a whole list on your handout of why I think you should not. And they're not my words. The greatest dangers to the church are inside of it, not outside of it. The very same book, Jesus says, many false teachers will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray others. Possibly even the elect, if it were possible. So be on guard. In Matthew 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly wolves. Christian, if you say doctrine doesn't matter, we should stop talking about doctrine and just be unified. Do you know what's happening to those churches? In our own valley, they're losing all the doctrines that matter. They are uniting around themselves and their sexuality and their ethnicity and their politics and all kinds of other things. And they are fleeing from the grace and the glory of Christ, which takes those who were far off and those who were near, who brings all ethnicities to the feet of Christ and unites around our eternal salvation. Doctrinal ambiguity brings Christian ambiguity, which means you're not a Christian. If you do not follow Christ and you just follow that you should let everyone do as they please and you should have no clarity of truth, do you even love them to let them run to sin, to let them be doing what Jesus directly said? If you should cause the least of the little ones of these to sin, you would be better off to tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the ocean. See, so often we think we are caring for other believers by letting them just be swallowed in shallow truth and no hope, no clarity on what Christ has done and accomplished. We say that doctrinal truth only brings division, but it's because we're shallow, because we're insecure. We're unwilling to be comforted by the Word and to be able to articulate from the Word, and we think the way I do it is best. And that's all I can go off of. Christian, you must be gentle, you must be kind, and you must not be quarrelsome, but you must love others in such a way to gently and kindly speak the truth of them that they might repent by the grace of God. So what do we do? We go over, I'm preaching, that's one thing we do. So that's, a, that's a part of our church. It doesn't mean we run out from here and, and we tell every other Christian they're wrong. Faith Bible Menifee is not the only church in Menifee. There are other faithful churches. But we do have to have clarity about what a faithful church is. I would encourage you to look at our doctrinal statement and there's points on there that could be helpful to you. You might word them otherwise. But it says the essential truths. And for most churches, this is the extent of their doctrinal statement. It is the essential truths. It's what must be held. It is truths that if you are a Christian, you must believe. And I had them. Here we go. Number one, we believe there is one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ his virgin birth, his sinless life, his miracles, his vicarious and atoning death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his personal return in power and glory. We believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, by whose indwelling every Christian is enabled to live a godly life. We believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, complete, and authoritative Word of God. We believe that all men are hopelessly lost sinners and must turn to Christ in saving faith and repentance through regeneration by the Holy Spirit, being drawn solely by God's grace. And we believe in the resurrection of both the saved and the lost, the saved to eternal life with Christ and the lost to eternal punishment in hell. Because we believe those truths, we must declare them. We must unite with churches that believe them. And we must recognize as a church, we are to teach one another. We are to know that Jesus says more often than don't stop him, he says there are false teachers. Many will come in my name and are not mine. It's why Jesus has cared for the church in such a way that we're not a generic universal, just rambling, wandering Christians that bump into each other in the grocery store and say, I feel more united to that believer than I ever did to anyone in church. Do you know why? It's why when you met a woman, you thought I could marry her and she would be the perfect wife. And then you lived with that woman for 15 years and you knew she's a sinner just like me. And we're going to need to depend on Christ. It's because that shallow engagement allowed you to live in all kinds of fantasies in your mind, not the truth. And the deep-rooted connectedness of the church removes your fantasies and roots you in the hope of the truth in Christ. And so as a church, let's not be those who run around trying to stop everyone from doing everything they're doing. Let's be rooted in the deep truth, united in such a way, patient and kind that we can speak to others. Let's recognize that God cares for local churches with responsibility. Who has the stricter judgment? Those who teach. There is a stricter judgment for those who teach. And so I am more likely to call out a man who teaches than just my brother on the street. Why? Because that man stands in judgment. He leads others. If someone in our church is going to be corrected, it should be me or Danny or Daniel because we teach we need to be corrected. We need to have clarity because Titus says that we are the men commanded to hold fast to the trustworthy word and to rebuke those who contradict. They are the men who must lead in that. So how do we approach this as a church? I don't just say randomly we're going to, we're just going to argue with everybody and, and fight everybody. Uh, I'm going to go online. I'm going to find out every false teaching that could be, every false teaching that ever existed. What's the, the hype in Christian media right now? We say, what is affecting our body? And the people in our body, what are they hearing? What are they being taught? What, what is happening? What's here? How do we protect them to instruct them in what is true and to rebuke what contradicts? being attentive in the same way you do so with your own family. You have family members that are Buddhists. You should understand how to reach out to them, how to explain to them, how to articulate that God has put you there for a purpose. But does that mean every Christian has to have all the answers for a Buddhist? You could spend all your time doing that and and never know a Buddhist. You look at who God has given you, You seek to have clarity and truth and protect them. And so as elders, that's what we seek to do. We're not here to correct every church in the valley. We're here to preach the truth, to make clear truth that is declared that is not, right? So at times we'll call people out. Like a few weeks ago, I I said, Kenneth Copeland is a heretic. And somebody came up to me after and they were like, "Were, were you nervous to say that? No, not nervous at all. Because the man is openly teaching as a heretic. Now, will I call my brother down the street who preaches it? Not my physical brother, but my brother in Christ who preaches different doctrine. Am I going to call him a heretic? No. But am I willing to sit down with him and correct? Am I going to call him out publicly? No, you you don't even know him. What what good is that going to do? So I just wanted to give you a a little bit of the flavor of why and how uh, we can apply this passage Because I think this is a passage that's often twisted, even in our own mind, to think it means I can't have doctrinal truth and clarity. I just have to see what anyone else is doing and saying, how do I know? Maybe that's Jesus. Maybe it's not. No, all that is done in the name of Jesus is not in the name of Jesus. I want to give you other examples, but... You're not Puritans. So only about five of you are going to be like, you shouldn't have stopped. The rest of you are just going to avoid eye contact with me and be like, bro, I'm starving. (laughs) So I'm going to pray. Patrick's going to come lead us in song, and we're going to participate together in communion.